series is called Best Things in Life are Free, The Values That Guide Us to Greater Freedom. Values are like that kite string. It may seem to hold us back, but they actually anchor us. They, they set us free. Values seem to restrict, but they set us free. Today, we're talking about the freedom of accountability. I heard a story about some boys that were, uh, they'd found a dog and they were circled up and they were talking among themselves and an old cratchety uh, minister came by and he said what are you doing and one of the boys spoke up and, and he said well we uh, we found this dog and we all want him so we're trying to have a contest he said what's the contest he said whoever tells the biggest lie wins the dog and this old crabby minister said you know what boys when I was your age, I wasn't trying to tell the biggest lie. I was trying to figure out how to be a person of truth. And the boy looked at his friends and he said, I guess he wins the dog. The whole idea of accountability, the whole idea of being tied to something, a standard that's outside of us, that begins with admitting that no one lives up to their own standards. There's a freedom in that. There's a freedom in admitting nobody lives up to their own standards. I think a lot of people are concerned that, that the church is full of people like that, like that old crabby guy, that not only do they have a higher standard, but they somehow they think that they achieve that standard. Ah, on the contrary, the Christian is the one who has the freedom to admit they don't achieve that standard because they found a standard outside of them. Accountability. From the Word of God, Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Hear God's Word this morning. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now through this word, not only to our minds to understand it, our hearts to believe it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you ever say, look, mom, no hands? She wasn't impressed. I guarantee you, she was not impressed. When you're riding your bike and you're going down the sidewalk and you yell out, look, mom, no hands, she's not impressed. Same thing with accountability. Look, God, no, no accountability. He is not impressed. I, I heard a story about uh, Gandhi who said, I love your Christ, but I do not love your Christians. Your Christians are not much like your Christ. Well, I believe that if Gandhi had spent time around Christians who were truly free, truly accountable, and therefore truly free to admit they did not measure up to Christ's standard, he would have been compelled by their freedom. 
That's what we need to see this morning. How does accountability set us free? How does it set us free? A couple different ways. First, accountability to a straight, the straight line of, of Scripture, accountability to a straight standard helps us see, gives us the freedom to see where we're tilted. I think everybody's building a deck. seems like every time I go to Lowe's, all of the decking boards are gone. And one of the things that I'm doing when I'm building my deck is I'm getting a lot of advice. This is some of the advice I got. Uh, one of you, uh, somebody you all know in the church here, said you, need, you really need three main tools to build a deck. He said you need a square, you need a level, and you need a plumb line. <laughs> all three of these things have to do with getting things lined up, right? So the first point here is that when you have a straight standard, when you are accountable to that straight standard, you can see where you're tilted. You know, it's, it's, when you're looking at a post and you're building a deck and you're looking at a post, we trust our own eye, don't we? It looks straight. And then you hold that plumb line up. You hold that, 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 that little weight that's at the end of a string. That's what a plumb line is. And through gravity, that, that string and that weight create a vertical line, a perfectly vertical line. And then when you hold it up to the post, you can see whether the post is straight, whether your perception was on, or whether it was off. See, people who have accountability to the straight edge of Scripture, they're accustomed, they grow accustomed to seeing where they're a little tilted. Jesus said, look, if you need an oath, if you need to borrow an oath to convince people that you're speaking straight, there's something tilted in you. You ought to be able to just let your yes be yes and your no to be no. You see, in the context, there, were some, there was some teaching that said, if you don't, if you don't swear directly uh, to God or, or use, invoke God's name directly to make an oath, if you swear by heaven, or you can see verse 34, swearing by heaven, or swearing by earth, or swearing by Jerusalem, or swearing by the, the hairs on your head, you know, may they turn gray, okay? That's not what I did, people, all right? It's, it's not what I did. Uh, if you have to invoke that, or the, the teaching was at the time, and Jesus is correcting this teaching, teaching was at the time, if you're indirect and not directly invoking God's name, then it's a little bit like, uh, you know, crossing your fingers behind your back and making a promise. It's, you know, the teaching was that if you're indirect, then you're not actually swearing. You're not actually taking a real and true oath. And so what that does is it sets up a double standard of the way that we, we talk. It sets up a double standard about the oaths and the promises and whether our word is our bond. You know, there's a, there's a book by... George Orwell called 1984. Most people had to read it sometime in high school or in college. And it uses this term. He introduces this term to describe the rise of Stalinist Russia. And how did the seeds of dictatorship and corruption, where, what were those seeds? And the term that represents the seeds of corruption is double think. 
1948, when he wrote this book, he was describing how does, um, how does a dictatorship gain power? Well, it begins with playing and manipulating the language. Here's what Orwell says. Doublethink is to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to use logic against logic, to believe that democracy, for example, was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. You see where it, the doublespeak begins, doublethink begins to filter its way into doublespeak? Democracy is not possible, so you need a party to protect democracy. And you begin to convince people, oh, yes, if we just have the right power over us, then we can be free. Then we can have democracy. It's like when you see this dog and his tail is wagging, but he's growling. Now, which end do you believe? <laughs> when a dog is growling and his tail is wagging, he's got you just where he wants you. You're unsure of yourself. He's in charge. You see, what happens with this double think and double speak, when you cross your fingers and put them behind your back and then you speak as though you mean what you say, we begin to corrupt the very fabric of trust. We begin to tear at the fabric of trust. And Jesus saw how big this was. You think, well, gosh, last week we were talking about do not murder, and this week it's like just don't even take an oath. I mean, that seems like a small thing, but now you see how big it can get. The beginnings, the seeds of corruption of Stalinist Russia began with doublethink. See, a plumb line is what we need. We need accountability to a standard that's outside of ourselves, not just our own thinking, not just that, oh, if I can just get power, then, then yes, then I will do good with it. Not just uh, that, well, uh, the ends justify the means, right? And so as long as I mean well, then I can speak untruth. But Jesus is saying, one standard. If you can't say yes and mean yes, then there's something tilted in you. So that's the first thing is, the first way that accountability sets us free, it, it sets us free by making us accustomed to seeing where there's daylight between the straight edge and ourselves, our own thinking. To line up our thinking with the straight edge of Scripture, of truth. Alexander Pope puts it this way. He says, you know, in, in terms of people thinking that their thinking needs no external accountability just because they read some article or because they believe they think something or they, they believe something is true. He said this, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring, which is a spring of knowledge and wisdom. He says, he goes on, he says the there or the, the Pyrian springs shallow drafts intoxicate the brain but drinking largely sobers us again a little learning is a dangerous thing see we need to drink deeply of the scriptures that hold us accountable to truth not cultural truth not culturally bound but age to age culture to culture 
person to person. We need that plumb line of Scripture. Second, accountability to Scripture uh, is a straight line that helps us see the difference between the way we feel and what really is the truth. Accountability to the straight edge of Scripture helps us see where our feelings are tilted. So, Jesus says, if you have to, if you're adding an oath to your speech, to your promises, or to what you're saying you believe or think or feel, and he's saying, you're, it's like you're invoking an authority that doesn't belong to you. It's like you're trying to make your feelings have an authority by adding God's authority to them, and you don't have the authority to add God's authority. In other words, you're, you're invoking God because uh, heaven belongs to God, earth belongs to God, Jerusalem is the holy city of God. The, you know, the, even the hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7, 7 uh, makes this comment. It says, says, the hairs on your head are numbered. God knows that the hairs on your head, his eye is on the sparrow, the hymn says. And I know he watches me. It comes right from that, Luke 12, 7. God is omnipresent. And so we don't have the power of attorney to invoke an authority as though we were bringing the authority of God to our feelings. That's often what we think our feelings are, authoritative. It's like this. When, when there's a wedding, you go to a wedding and you see some, a couple stand up there and they, they make their wedding vows. They're not saying, this is how I'm going to feel every day for the rest of my life. They're not saying, I'm vowing to feel this way every day or for the rest of my life. No, their vow is to be accountable to their commitments. Their vow is to stay committed, no matter how they feel day to day, moment to moment. And on the basis of, of that structure, of that foundation, the waxing and waning of feelings have the security to grow over time, to age over time, to become more consistent over time. That's what the vow is. You say, well, Tim, I thought we weren't supposed to make vows. Well, this is one exception. A ceremonial vows, you know, Paul makes a ceremonial vow. There are plenty of places where ceremonially uh, it, it's okay to, to, uh, to, to make an official statement that includes a vow. What Jesus is talking about is not having a double standard in the way that we speak every day. He's saying, let your yes be yes and let that carry its own weight because you, you're going to follow through because you mean it. But today, one of the problems that we have is that our feelings don't always line up with that standard. But we think they do because they're our feelings. And we begin to Invest, we begin to vest our feelings with an authority that they do not have, right? We begin to, to, to use the power of attorney to, uh, to, to leverage our feelings as though they were the truth because we know because that's how we feel about them. And we elevate our feelings to a level of authority that they do not have. You know, you've, you've heard this, um, the rise of the nuns, right? And when there's a 
when there's a, a form and someone asks uh, about your faith, you know, are you a Muslim? Are you a Christian? Are you a Presbyterian? Are you a Baptist? It, there's a box that says none. And, and increasingly, uh, the, you know, younger generations are checking the nuns box as though that meant that our future generations are becoming less religious. Well, as a matter of fact, I think they're becoming much more religious because every single feeling becomes an opinion that is part of their religion. One of my professors said this, when people stop believing in truth, they don't believe nothing. They believe anything, but especially they begin to vest their feelings with religious level of authority. You know, you see this. I mean, you can see this all over social media that not only do I have this opinion because I feel a certain way about an issue, but it's vested with like my entire self. My whole identity rests on it. I can't agree to disagree agreeably or I can't disagree agreeably because it's vested with the, the weight of my whole salvation. You know, whether I'm right or wrong, whether I'm on the right side or the wrong side of history, it all hinges upon how I feel about this particular issue. And so now I am my opinion, and you are your opinion. And not only are you wrong about that, but you're a bad person because you don't feel the same way about it that I do. You see how that creates this religion that's driven by our own feelings wrapped up in this hubris of self well see scripture the authority of scripture and our accountability of it it calls us out of this self-centeredness it begins to show us the straight edge of what's timeless and true from age to age from culture to culture from place to place and we can then see whether or not we feel how we're feeling because the mood of the country is swinging a certain way and whether or not that's true, does that line up with Scripture? You see, the benefit is it's outside of us. And we're not simply tied to the whims of the way that we feel, elevating that to a level of authority it does not have. There's no freedom in that. See, there's a freedom to be able to have the ability to see the difference between how we're tilted and how Scripture lines up. And we can begin then to have some humility about our perspectives and our opinions and our feelings. We can agree to disagree. We can disagree agreeably. Let me give you an example of what it looks like to vest our feelings, something that feels right but is clearly wrong. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. Leslie Newbegin, his book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society is just a seminal work that has launched a, a whole generation of discussion about about what it means to have, um, have an authority outside of us uh, versus what feels right, which is uh, sort of letting everybody have an equal opinion. Uh, he uses this illustration of blind men feeling different parts of an elephant. One feels uh, the, the leg and says, oh, that's a, that's a, it's like a tree. An elephant is like a tree. And another one is, is saying, uh, no, I'm... I'm I think it's like a snake because he's, he's blind and he's got a hold of, of the, uh, the trunk. Somebody else says, no, it's like a big, it's like, like a big flap, you know, because he's got a hold of an ear. And the analogy is often used to say, well, everybody sees a part of this thing. 
and everybody, and it's equally helpful to sort of blend these together and truth is found somewhere in the mix of things. Well, what perspective allows you to look above those blind men and see the whole elephant? You see that the fallacy there is that in telling, in, so, so the blind men represent different religions. And the, then reason or the way we feel about um, people disagreeing about ultimate things it is my perspective looking at the whole picture. Well, who gave you that vantage point? Who, who said that, that because you, you're looking at these religions that, that you have the authority to say that, that all of them only are seeing a part, but you are seeing the whole? Do you see how that centers truth on the person, on how they feel about what's right or wrong or what's fair or, or, or what's reasonable? Whereas... What Christianity does is it says, look, none of us, there's a standard outside of us, and it's universal. And we all know that. We all know that there are certain things that are obviously true for everyone. You know, certain, certain basic morality that we know is true for everyone. And so we can't relegate to what, what we believe and what's true to just one person's uh, God's eye view of it reducing religion. See, what Christianity does is it gives us the freedom to say none of us, none of us rises to our own standard. None of us, none of us achieves our own standards. The, the magic, the beauty, and the freedom of Christianity is the ability to be the first to admit it and to say the authority is not in me, it's outside of me. I don't attain it. But I press on to the upward call in Jesus Christ. You know, what, what it looks like, what this freedom looks like then is, is a lot like the difference between two alcoholics. One alcoholic says, you know what? God, uh, I'll take it from here. I've been sober for several years, and now I think I've got it. Uh, I don't need my, um, my group. I don't need to, uh, to worry about uh, whether or not I'm going to slide into... Uh, alcoholism again, uh, I can take it from here and I can manage this, this temptation myself. That's, that's the person who has, has separated himself from authority. The other alcoholic is one who says this. No, I admit that this is still a problem and I need accountability. And as a result, he's set free from the slavery of alcohol abuse. That's a great picture of the Christian life. Not that we've attained it, but that there is an accountability and that, that we're under its authority and find a, a freedom in it. In other words, as someone said, he who makes himself slave to the compass, he who makes himself slave to the compass can have the freedom of the sea. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that through Scripture we may know you and, and know the standard. The standard that Jesus lived, not, not that following it, Lord, is, is just to set a good example or to just try harder to attain that standard, but, but the freedom 
from Jesus' standard being achieved gives us the freedom to fail forward. How we thank you, Lord, for the, for the fact that you see the standard he set when you look at us trusting him. Help us take the next step this very day. In Jesus' name.